Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Soprano chair of the renowned Prism Quartet and internationally acclaimed soloist Timothy McAllister has been hailed as a virtuoso, one of the foremost saxophonists of his generation by the New York Times. Since his solo debut at age 16 with the Houston Civic Symphony, his career has taken him throughout the world with solo performances in such venues such as Prince Royal Albert Hall in London, the Sydney Opera House, Carnegie Hall and the Concertabau in Amsterdam. McAllister has premiered over 200 new works by today's most eminent and emerging composers, ranging from solo compositions to saxophone quartets and chamber works. In 2009, he appeared as saxophonist with the Los Angeles Philharmonic for the gala concert performing the world premiere of Pulitzer Prize and multiple Grammy award-winning composer John Adams' major work, City Noir. In 2017, he performed the work with the famed Berlin Philharmonic, which appeared on the Digital Concert Hall, and he recorded for the Berlin Philharmonic's John Adams edition anthology. In 2013, McAllister gave the world premiere of John Adams' saxophone concerto with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra under the baton of the composer in the Sydney Opera House. This work was recorded for Non-Such Records and the St. Louis Symphony, which won the 2015 Grammy Award for Best Orchestral Performance. A dedicated teacher, McAllister spends his summers as instructor of saxophone for the Interlochen Centre for the Arts and has served as guest professor at the famed Paris Conservatoire. In 2014, he was appointed Associate Professor of Saxophone at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theatre and Dance, following the legacies of Larry Teal and Donald Sinter, after holding the same post at Northwestern University, succeeding the legendary Frederick Hemke. Please welcome my guest today, American saxophone soloist Timothy McAllister. Thanks for coming this afternoon to talk with me. Thank you. It's so great much. to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you again. And you know, I was just looking back to work out how we first met, and you performed the John Adams Concerto in Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, the premiere, and we had a beer afterwards. Yes. And I was looking back at the photo, and I didn't realise this, but above our heads in the photo, it says "Pick up here." Pick up here. <laughs> I thought that's a good place to meet someone. It is. You're right. I think you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that cafe. It was great. Yeah, it's come a long way since then. And then, and then I went to Melbourne right after that, yep. after that performance. And you were starting your camp, I think, That's at that right. time. So, um, and that, that was a wonderful stay in Australia. What a great country! And what's happening with saxophone and what you're doing is the work you're doing and the the composition outfit and out, output, and then the the uh, educational initiatives of of what you're doing is fantastic. Great. So, thank, thank you. you. Great. Yeah. I would love to know how you got started with the saxophone. How I got started? Well, uh, as people might or might not know, I mean, the educational band movement in the United States has been going strong for a long time, and that can start as early as fifth grade or sixth grade, where we're 
essentially recruited to play in the school band. And, and I'm not sure if it, there's a similar system like that in the school systems in Australia. But for us, it, the, the concert band is just a part of educational culture. You know, the students are either playing on the sports teams or you're playing in the band, right? So I think uh, in, in fifth grade, the junior high teachers were coming to the elementary school to recruit students to play in the band. Uh, I had taken piano lessons with my mother, uh, but I, that didn't work out very well over the long run, you know, to have like to, for your mother to be your teacher. Somehow there's something, there's some kind of resistance to practicing and all kinds of things. I didn't want to practice in the house in front of her, but, um, but you know, I mean, we, we were children of the eighties, you, you and I, you know, and, and to come and to, to see the rise of of things like MTV or music videos and of course popular music and saxophone are just they were deeply intertwined in the in the 80s and um, but when the when the teachers came to school you know they, they were asking us what instruments we want to play and for me the saxophone was really for me the most interesting instrument because it seemed the coolest obviously and I I don't think I had really had a sense much yet of of the significance of jazz, for instance, but but certainly seeing saxophone and you know in music videos and television and just knowing about it, that got me interested. And I I uh, chose the saxophone, and then I was quite large for a fifth grader. Um, I was not much shorter. I think I was the tallest student in my elementary school, but I was like even skinnier or much. More, I was very skinny, but I was tall, and I was recruited by the basketball coach of the junior high as well to play on the basketball team. But the, the band director told me, no, we have plenty of saxophones. We have plenty of kids interested in saxophone. Uh, you should play tuba. Tuba, <laughs> we need a lot of tuba players. You're, you're a big guy. Uh, you'd carry it real, really well and you would, you would be able to handle it. And we really, uh, we think that would be great. How about we sign you up for tuba? And, and of course I was a little nervous anyway, just talking to the, the band teacher and I was like, oh, okay, I'll play the tuba. Um, and then, uh, he signed me up and then I went home and I kind of complained to my mother I said, I really wanted to play the saxophone, but he signed me up for tuba. And, um, so my mother called the school and said, my son wants to play saxophone. He will play saxophone, you know, so she, it was really funny. So I, I guess I owe that to my mother. But um, but this was in Houston, Texas. So Texas as a state in the United States is a huge um, band state. Right? There's just the, the level of the concert bands in the high schools and junior high systems are, are incredible. I mean, they rival any university wind band, you know, uh, level in around the world. And so I was in a system where the, 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 the training was very high. We were expected to play. We were expected to take private lessons if we wanted to be in the top group in the school. We were expected to take private lessons. There was quite an interesting system still to this day throughout Texas. There's an entire sanctioned system of auditions to go through these various levels, regional and all state uh, competitions to set you up for honor bands. And so we were all really from a very young age, we were all really set up to uh, to be involved in a competitive environment, much like athletics. So they were treating in some ways, music and athletics, just this, the same. And 
I found that that was maybe the easiest way to to distinguish myself was to just compete in these in these competitions to try to make the honor bands and the all state bands. But but my first private lesson teacher, uh, well, I guess I should back up. When I was in junior high band, um, I did fairly well, but I didn't practice uh, much. I, my my band director started to notice that my saxophone was always left in the band room. It wasn't going home at night. And I was very much into BMX uh, biking, racing. I was into BMX racing and then into the, you know, freestyle trick bike, you know, the acrobatic stuff, you know, uh, half pipes and quarter pipes and then, you know, ground trick routines. And I in, uh, in seventh grade, I was part of Team GT BMX and we would travel and do shows. You know, we would just play shows and in uh, parking lots and uh, shopping malls, and it was scripted, and and we had um, um, you know, music that we would we would choreograph too. So I was really doing that. And I was just really into that. Um, but when I was in eighth grade, my bike that my my, my prize possession was my bicycle. And um, it was very expensive and it was all custom and every, you know, every component was was individually expensive. And, but it got stolen. It was uninsured. The bike was uninsured, it got stolen outside. It wasn't even on our, our, our property of our house. But um, it was interesting because that was probably a turning point. And I also realized that this wasn't really something I could do for for a livelihood or a profession. However, it, there was a lot of momentum going towards it it's kind of like skateboarding you know or surf or even like surfing there was more and more media attention coming to bmx and now you see it on television like the winter x game or the x games you know when they do the uh the 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 trick biking for scoring anyway so i don't know so so somewhere around eighth grade i started to get more serious started to apply myself more uh with saxophone and my band director noticed and she she took me aside and she said at the time, I was not taking private lessons, and she took me aside and she said, "You will take private lessons." She ordered me. She was angry <laughs> at me because she saw that when I applied myself and I practiced, I, you know, I was excelling uh, quite a bit in, in the band, and so she ordered me to take private lessons. And my first private teacher was a gentleman in Houston who was the main woodwind instrumentalist in Houston. He played. He was sort of the top call for Houston Ballet and Houston Grand Opera, uh, saxophone, clarinet, oboe, flute, anything. And he taught private lessons on all those instruments. Uh, his name was Chester Rowell. He's still active in Houston area. But, um, you know, I'd go to my I'd go to my lessons and he'd have every instrument out and he'd be in the middle of practicing something. He had some gig coming up and, you know, he, I'd walk in and he would sometimes have to remember what instrument he was teaching now it's like what do you play oh you're a saxophonist right so and then i was just enamored you know he had a beautiful mark six and i was just wow really impressed by that i knew about the mark six and uh he set me up with voxman etudes and all the standard things and but he also gave me my first tape recording of of classical players because so much of what the band was doing was classical all these auditions we had to do was we had to play fairling etudes and all of the the typical stuff, but I hadn't heard really repertoire yet. I didn't know anything about solo music. 
concert music, but he gave me a tape. And, uh, and on one side of the tape was Donald Sintas recording American music. And so it had Creston and, you know, Haydn Sonata and Benson and all. The other side was Fred Hemke's recording of the Dahl Concerto and the Husa Concerto with piano. So that was my first recording. And at this time, I listened. I was been listening. Who I guess if there was a saxophonist I was listening to, it was probably Grover Washington. Maybe next was David Sanborn. Uh, I started to discover names like Charlie Parker and and you know the classics. John, when I first heard John Coltrane, I, I was pretty young and I just didn't know what to make of it. It was confusing to me. You know, I didn't understand what this was. Is this jazz? You know, so because it, it was so spiritual and so, you know, rich, you know. But I understood when I heard like early bebop, I understood that that was jazz. And then, of course, swing players. But then, but I was really into the 80s fusion players, you know. But when I heard classical players, suddenly it, it aligned with all of the things I was doing in band. You know, so concert band music, I was trying to get my head around, around what all this was, but it was, okay, this is what we call classical music. It's just a training system, you know, concert, wind concert band, right? For junior high. So when I heard classical saxophone, not only did I love it, but it made sense with what I was doing somehow. So I saw that there was an actual path. Somehow there was a, a reason for this. It wasn't so much that, because I, I didn't identify with with band and what, say, David Sanborn was doing. So I didn't understand the saxophone between those two worlds. I didn't realize that they were, that, that it was uh, supposed to be different. Maybe I thought that somehow you graduated and eventually, you know, got to the things that Sanborn was doing, you know, after working your way through school band. You know, I didn't understand that there was a path for classical players. But then, so I was really hooked. I was very hooked on the Crest and the Paul Crest and Sonata. I mean, in the Doll Concerto. I mean, I was just so hooked on that music. So it did, it did resonate with me. But I think when I really started to see what the prospects were somehow, you know, as limited as they are, I still saw the path. It's, it happened with my next teacher after uh, my first teacher kind of told me, you know, I've done everything I can with you. I'm more of a multi-woodwind instrumentalist. I see where you're going with this repertoire. I don't have that training. Let me send you to another guy. So he sent me to a gentleman named Ralph Burton, who is still a dear friend today, who's retired now, lives in the American Northwest. Um, Ralph Burton uh, was a graduate assistant of Eugene Rousseau. So he studied at Indiana University. Um, he had lessons with John Sampin. He, he met, he had lessons with Larry Teal when he was very young and he was, he lived in Houston and he, after upon, upon graduation from Indiana university, he just decided, I'm just going to drive. I'm just, you know, I'm going to take my pickup truck and I'm going to drive to Texas and I'm going to choose a town to drop anchor in. And I'm just going to advertise for private teaching. And the, when he, and he in fact did that. And when he arrived, he just, he chose South part of Houston where I was from. And he, he went and met the band directors in the school district. And within one day he had over 40 private lesson students set up. That was just the reality of saxophone teaching in that area. It still is. You can basically just choose any town in Texas and you'll have private students, you know, within an hour of arriving. It's pretty incredible that it's the system is just so, uh, so set up that way. But, um, well, Ralph Burton quickly became kind of the, the big saxophone player in Houston. And in 1987, he was the 
principal chair of the Houston Grand Opera's premiere of Nixon in China of John Adams because that's where that's where the, the opera had its start. And I just remember coming in for lessons, and I don't know if you you know played that book before. I've, I've played it. Right. It's so great. the you know the part you know looks like you know looks like an encyclopedia, it's, um, right? Seventy pages. Yeah, or right. It's incredible. Black. Yeah, of just nonstop. <laughs> So I would come into my lessons and he would just be sitting there practicing and cursing, you know, and he would say, look at this part, look at it. And, you know, who's this guy, this young guy, there's some guy named John Adams, the name of a president, you know, it sounds like, and uh, he's a minimalist composer, but you know, this stuff seems pretty challenging, you know, and he was just showing me all these, you know, all the arpeggios and he was just kind of providing to me a, a, a proof of, of why we practice scales and arpeggios you know here was an example of a composer who was just using this to the fullest extent really and uh he said i'll get you a ticket you know if you want to come hear this and i was i think i was sophomore i think i was a second year in high school so sophomore in high school so i was 97 i was 15 16 years old and so I went to I went to hear the opera and, and I had heard I'd gone to some classical symphony concerts, you know, I still didn't make I didn't make the connection with what I was listening to. If I listened to Tchaikovsky or Berlioz or Bruckner, I, I somehow didn't see the relevance to what I do or what I was interested in. But suddenly I saw this production as incredible as it was and the music and then, you know, seeing that this was a living composer walking on stage to acknowledge and take a bow and hearing this music and hearing the saxophones rolling this music, I think that was the moment I, I, I established in my mind that that's what I want. This, I want this. I want this experience. I want this kind of lifestyle. I don't care how, what I have to do. I mean, I'll be happy playing, you know, any part in that. Um, and But I was still a kid. You know, I was, like, I was naive to what really, you know, there are challenges, obviously, in our field with providing opportunities, not only for ourselves, but for creating a reality for our students about what's there. But, but at that moment, the grandeur of that moment, the, the just seemingly expansiveness of, of importance of this moment, I felt like, well, there is a place for saxophone, you know, with something like this, look at what, look at the scale of this production and there's saxophones in this orchestra. So I got hooked, frankly, I mean, I was hooked on that. And, and it just, for me, it, it was like a dream come true years later to have that a relationship blossom with someone like John Adams and, and results in this concerto. In some ways, I think that experience set me up to just put that on my wish list for the rest of my life. Um, and and I, I often talk about this with students. If you just, if you just decide that this is something you want and you understand that that there's a, a a pretty common blueprint about how to get there if you if you point in that direction uh anything you strive for to reach that goal is going to be significant even if you never reach that goal if you decide i want to be i want to be the greatest saxophonist in the world okay well that's kind of ridiculous to say because it's hard to really identify what that means but if you even just set your mind to that any success that comes along the way is going to be valid or legitimate so I think I went through my whole life imagining that all of this had a purpose and that was eventually to get to those people, a person like John Adams or any opportunities. You it know? sounds like you like to plan. Is that right? I do. Yeah. I think so. Do you, do you, I, I set up long-term plans. How far ahead are you thinking? At least five years. 
Yeah. I think because we know, you know, as you know, we live in that kind of cycle where let's say you're commissioning or you're planning an album. Uh, you can't just wish an album into experience. You know, you're going to make a record. There's so much planning that goes into that. You have to actually lay it all down. Then there's the editing and then the product post-production. And then even if you want a label, you're talking about from start time to release time, I don't know, minimum two years, three years. So you're listening to recording projects and you're hearing, you know, this time capsule of your playing in the past. Sometimes you're disgusted by it. It's like you're so much better. Oh man, I have a new horn now and listen to this old recording. So we change, you know, but I do like to set up projects that way. Um, I think when I saw this kind of path emerging, then I realized, well, here's the steps. The steps are you audition for this thing, you get this, you get this and you get this. And hopefully this gets you uh, set up or attractive to potential college professors. You get recruited. You, you hopefully get some opportunities, scholarship opportunities. You apply to these schools to hear the teachers, hear the big names. Uh, and, and you just work your way up that way. So I, I think even when I got into college, so I, I went to Michigan, studied with Donald Sinta. Uh, I, you know, I had an opportunity to study with Eugene Rousseau at Indiana. My teacher, Ralph Burton, was very disappointed that I did not go to Indiana. And, he, you know, to this day, he always jokes about it. But, uh, you know, those were the, those are always the big three, Michigan, Indiana, Northwestern, Hemke, Sinta, Rousseau. Um, and all of their students, you know, that created this large, beautiful tree. We could point to that. At least those of us that are, we're talking about the French, the French American school or the French transplanted tradition, right? And, and of course, we still have people promoting maybe a rasher style in the United States. And there's universities associated with that style. You have some people that are maybe more crossover players. You have some people that are really, really very deeply entrenched in sort of, uh, you know, the, the mule Hemke style. And then there's, there's this tradition that emerged from Larry Teal with, with Donaldson to being his, you know, greatest protege. But, but Teal was really part of like this New York school, this American school out of New York, you know, people like Merle Johnston, who was credited with being the first teacher of jaw vibrato in the United States. And, and these figures like Al Galadoro, you know, and, and these, these players that sort of intersected with this Rudy Weedoft, you know, lineage, you know, this legacy, this intersection of that, you know, um, I think that had more impact on what we call the American school than the French training that was finding its way into our university system, you know. So, so I think Cinta and Teal were, were more in line with that. And you have the Joe Allard kind of school, if you know about that. And you had Vincent Ambato, who was pr premiered the Creston Concerto with the New York Philharmonic. I mean, there were these iconic figures that we've kind of forgotten about, you know. But... Um, but so it still really came down to either people wanting to study with with one of the big three or their big students, you know, and now that 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 list has gotten just huge. So um, so I but I went to Michigan. I studied at Interlochen, uh, which is a, the oldest uh, summer music camp for high school students in the United States. I teach there now. I've been teaching there for many years now. And Sigurd Rasher was the first teacher at that camp. Uh, Cecil Leeson taught at that camp. Uh, Larry Teal, Hemke, Sampin, Luloff, um, Sinta. I mean, the, the list goes on. The, the saxophone tradition of this high school camp is so deeply entrenched that that I'm honored to be a part of that. And but it was there that I heard Donald Sinta play live, and I heard him play the Denisov 
sonata and i had the music but it didn't it didn't look like it was possible even when i saw the music i'm like what is this i I don't know. I don't understand 1832 time. <laughs> okay. So I don't really know what that truly means. And I saw all the black, I, you know, and, and I thought it was just kind of a mythical piece or somehow it didn't, I didn't know how it could be played, but I heard Sinta play it live in summer of 1990 on a faculty recital at this summer camp and standing room only. And people were sitting on the stage because they didn't want people standing in the aisles. And, and he played it and it, and it changed my life. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I had already had a sense of what this was going to be about or what the big repertoire was, but to hear that piece live as a, as a, um, 17 year old, 16 year old, uh, that was when I knew I had to study with him. Um, but then getting to that, I mean, he recruited me heavily, went to Michigan. And then when I was a freshman, he just established that when you mentioned plan, he established that. I mean, he said, here's what you're going to do. Here's what you do. You're going to play a recital every year. You're not going to repeat any music. You're not allowed to ever play the same piece twice. And this is your plan for four years. And here's the progress of the literature. Uh, and then I want a plan every week of what you're coming in to do. I want to see written down, etudes prepared, etudes, in, in, etudes ready, etudes on, you know, in progress, repertoire that you're ready to play for me, repertoire in progress. And, the, you know, so those four columns represented our lesson material, you know, for the week. Um, and but he also as strict as he was about that. He did give us a long leash in other ways. He just assumed we would be hungry enough to know what was going on with recordings. The very first recording he would give us wasn't of you know him or a sax or any saxophone players at all. I mean, he wanted us to study all the great cellists. He wanted us to know all the cello repertoire and violin repertoire. He wanted us to know the Brahms violin sonata. He wanted us to know the Col Nidre of Max Brook. You know, uh, his favorite recording was Lynn Harrell uh, on the Decca label. I mean, we, it was. It was an introduction to just the greater world of art music and and just being falling in love with music that wasn't saxophone music. Do you think there's a, a danger now that people listen to too much saxophone music and not enough of the other repertoire? I think that's always been a danger. And, and we have to ask ourselves who the people who were most inspired by, uh, what were they listening to? You know, so Marcel Mule was certainly not listening to saxophone so uh he, and he was probably listening to chrysler and heifetz and and pablo casals i mean you know we know that we know that maybe he emulated that vibrato to some degree you know or he was listening to his his contemporaries on other instruments like Mar marcel moise uh, you know or or um george Langy. i mean you know it's, it's kind of amazing that we've created such an incredible field that's so rich that you could choose to only listen to saxophone music if you wish, you know, but they couldn't do that. Right. So they didn't have that access, but, but I think Sinta's approach was just uh, larger. The larger umbrella had to be more important to you. You needed to be able to converse with a string player about all of the Beethoven string quartets. It's irrelevant if they could converse with you or not about the Eber concertino. That's irrelevant. Your place in the society will be dictated by how well you navigate just, you know, common musical 
thought, you know, just or the canon of classical Western music. You you want to belong in this thing, but you don't know anything about music. How would you navigate that, right? So, but that would trickle down into just the awareness and knowledge of composers. So, I mean, he would he would set that process up so that you were eventually getting to the point where you understood a, a, a trajectory that starts with Bach, you know, or, or early music and works its way all the way to the most recent prize winners or the, 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 the composers who are being commissioned all over the world uh, or played all over the world. And you start to find these intersections. So you start to notice, OK, who, who are the composers that start writing for saxophone? And using that as a, a jumping off point to understand that there's categories, there's different types of music, there's different types of composers. You start to f understand modernism out of that or postmodernism and, and neo-romanticism and neoclassicism. I think that was um, I think that was a way for the, the studio training to reflect the kinds of uh, study in your music history classes, for instance, try to in, trying to align the studio curriculum with what you're seeing in your theory and your history class. But but I think it was that planning, it was that that kind of system that set me up. And then I, I saw graduate school immediately for all of us that have some aspirations to be college professors or um, you know, eventually on the way towards the doctorate, I you know, it just assumed that you would get a master's degree. So I knew there would be a six year plan. And along the way, I was just kind of saying, okay, here's what I want to be playing by the end of that. When I was, a, uh, when I finished my junior year of, um, junior year of third, that's third year, junior year, third year of, 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 of college, I had done a recital uh, with a pianist who uh, I ended up becoming a duo with uh, briefly named Kevin Class. And we put out uh, a recital, live performance of a recital that we decided to use as a demo to send around to record labels. We said, what the heck? Let, let's see if someone would be interested in this. you know." Um, and we ended up realizing it should be a little bit better than that so we went into a recording studio so i i was essentially making my first recording in a very professional environment um when i was 20 21 and we fished it around to some record labels that's just what you did back then you know you just sent it out and seeing if people were interested and centaur centaur records was interested and they said we'd like to put this out um, we'd like you to add maybe some more music to it. And so we added William Bolcom's Lilith, I think, and we added maybe one other transcription or something, but that ended up being my first CD. And I put that out and that, that the CD as a result was released in the uh, September of my master's degree. So I was entering into the first semester of, of my graduate degree and I had a professional CD out. Um, that, I felt was such an important thing because there were no websites. We didn't have any way to get our name out. This was the only way to have some kind of branding associated with your name was to get a recording out as soon as possible. Uh, it Maybe it was presumptuous or too overly ambitious of me, but I think my peers in school thought, well, gosh, you know, who, who, who thinks so highly of themselves this, at this age that they're going to put out an album? But I... I, it didn't matter to me if it wasn't uh, as great as I'd wanted it to be. You know, now I listen back to the album and I'm both kind of horrified and impressed. You know, if I was, because when I think about my own students at that age, I'd like them to be as ambitious. 
And I'd also like them to be more cautious. Like, don't put stuff out now without feeling like you're, you know, you're going to be proud of it and it's going to withstand the test of time. But no one was going to tell me uh, that that I had to wait in line. Like, you're you're not supposed to make a CD until you're much older. I didn't. I kind of wanted to buck that trend. I was looking at all these violinists that were making CDs at ten and eleven years old, like Midori. Like, why can't we try this? You know, what's stopping us? Do you think the role of an album now is as essential as a promotional tool or all of the other avenues that we have, as you mentioned with the internet? Is that something more to focus on than just recording an album that... I think that's, that is really what's amazing, has changed in an in, in incredible fashion, is that, that, that we are able to use free free media, free social media to become our own PR campaigns. It's pretty incredible. And YouTube has changed all of it now. I mean, there's students that go to YouTube as a primary resource before they'll ever buy an album because they're going to get a free recording or they're going to hear something for free. Even sometimes if if it's just another amateur uh, putting out a live performance, I mean, it's something they can still at least study. And in many cases, they prefer to hear that because it's a direct comparison uh, to where they are, maybe if they're listening to another amateur putting out a recording. So maybe the album, maybe the idea of an of an album and all of that investment, I mean, maybe it is disappearing, the importance of that. But uh, I mean, we're moving now to a whole digital platform that only thing, uh, things will only be streamed going forward. We're talking about albums and physical products going away completely. iTunes won't even allow us soon uh, to download anything directly into our computers. We're just going to have to pay to stream it. And that would be ownership. That would be the equivalent of ownership. So maybe it's not the same. You know, um, I mean, you know, I'm very old fashioned and I still love C- I still love the CD uh, and I still love having, you know, the program notes and the, 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 the sense of it being a monograph. And those of us in academia, you know, we have to have these kind of products, you know, like a like a book or another type of monograph. So, but I, younger younger students, younger players are able to take full advantage of of the internet now, you know, in, in, on an unprecedented scale. Um, but after putting out that album, I saw the benefits of that because it it turned into some re- got some reviews, got some critical acclaim. I was able to really uh, use that. Uh, and little by little, it started to uh, uh, it started to result in more and more projects. So I just kept seeing, in addition to my my training and my schooling, I saw that that so much of the blueprint to at least have some opportunities meant that you you seek out composers, you try to you try to come up with very humble relationships with young composers in which in a you know commission might be an exchange uh, you know uh, you write the piece i promise to play the piece and i promise to play the piece three times or i promise to record the piece uh, i i saw that okay there there's something right there uh, the composer will work for you as much as you will work for them you you work you're promoting the material together and um, that starts to build your network I think we all found those relationships beneficial to us when we were younger. And that's where we saw, I mean, you saw certainly the ability to compose on top of playing provided another avenue for you. So I think for me, it was, it was promoting composers and commissioning music. Uh, uh, And also I was promoting, um, well, I also believed that I could be 
or I, I was training to be either a player or a, a school band teacher. So I have a music education training uh, for my undergraduate. My bachelor was in music education. So I, I wanted to play as, as well as I could. I wanted to put out recordings. I wanted to commission composers, but I really was deeply uh, grounded in uh, school music training so that I, I would have something, you know, maybe that would be my first job. Um, I, I didn't necessarily think or know what the job prospects were going to be after graduate school. I did have dreams of being a professor of saxophone somewhere, but, but it, uh, I did do a, uh, uh, two master's degrees, one master's degree in conducting and I was, re I was recruited aggressively for that. Uh, and, uh, and then also a second master's degree in, in saxophone. And upon finishing those two degrees in the same year, I had I had positioned myself to be attractive for some jobs that came open, and I was offered a couple of college teaching jobs for saxophone, and I was offered a high school a high school uh, uh, assistant band director job locally nearby. So that was where my life had a, a choice. I had a choice to make, you know, a fork in the road. They would say so. I was either going to, I was prepared for both sides, but I had to make a choice. And I chose saxophone because that presented itself to me. And then once I had that first college job, that's when I started to understand a lot more of what it means to become your own person, your own artist. Uh, I often would hear that from my teachers that say, you know, once you stop taking lessons, that's when you have to really start to figure things out on your own. And uh, that's when you start to truly become an artist. And I, you know, I understood that. Do you think people do find their identity or is it a difficult thing, a nebulous thing that's difficult to find? I think it's hard to find. I, I think we're always trying to uh, align ourselves with, with, with players who inspire us. And that gives us at least some kind of, some, some kind of model to follow. But I do think it we all become quite independent from each other. It, it's it, I mean, and yet we're all still within the same orbit of one another. No one, no one is doing something that is completely, uh, completely alien to the ideas you know, of, of what of what started us of what of what saxophone or concert saxophone. If we're talking about that specifically, it's pretty hard to completely reinvent the genre there are people certainly doing a good job with that in many ways but it's it's pretty hard for there not to be some ability to trace it back to a certain inspiration you know people who are part of you know a french school or part of a you know a, a, a part of a whatever you want to say i mean any of these traditions um but I think along the way, just the fact that we're different human beings and we just hear music differently or we process information differently or we have a different anatomy in the way we set, what way it sets up our sound or, or how we hear things. Just the idea of processing information, maybe it's just different from person to person. And if you have, what if, what if you're losing your hearing? Would you hear your sound differently? You know, I think you, you would probably choose your setup differently because you can't really tell you know what what's different about you know and then someone else is hearing your sound differently because you're you're hearing your sound differently so i i don't know i think it's i think it's i think it does happen naturally um over time but for younger players i think it is important to just 
imitate your models for a while. You know, it's important to just point to them and say, here's the, here's my favorite sound. Here is my favorite playing. I would love to be able to, to just scratch the surface on, on what that means to produce that sound. And if I can at least point myself in that direction, it starts to manifest itself organically, naturally with, 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 with the way you play. Um, Tim, it, yeah, it's, it sounds like you're very busy. You're teaching, playing every way, the quartet. How does your practice work? Now you're, now you're very active compared to say when you were a student. Mm-hmm. I think, I think as, as you, I'm sure you can attest to as well, practicing just diminishes greatly. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes, it becomes a, a challenge and also a chore. I mean, I have to practice. Uh, I've got this thing coming up and, and we have so much of a reputation to try to uphold at this point too. The older we get, we, so practicing becomes a bit stressful. You, you start to, I, I think when I was a student, practicing was inspiring. It was, it was something that I knew had a payoff. There was going to be some growth, even if it was very minuscule, I, uh, just making sure I put the time in meant that, uh, that, that I would be able to see or chart my progress. Now, now practicing is, it has to be efficient. It has to be, uh, it has to be carefully scheduled. So, um, in the case of something like my quartet prism, for me, practicing is more about score study, making sure that I'm at least aware of, of what I'm up against in terms of the, the whole group and, and how, when we rehearse, making sure I know their parts very well making sure i know my part but if but if i'm not physically ready to play the music in some ways the rehearsal takes care of some of that just to get me physically in a good place to play that music but i might not be able to develop um the the so the the part itself until we start to actually rehearse so it's a terrible thing to say and you would never want your students to learn their parts in rehearsal but that does happen that's a that's the reality of our lives we have to like just really kind of get things together when we actually are playing um, for solo stuff, I'm just going to really be careful about how I program. I need to make sure that I'm not o- overwhelming my st- myself with n- with all new things. There's always got to be some uh, repertoire that I'm that I'm uh, rehashing so that I have I have some anchors in my programming. How a piece like the John Adams Concerto, for example, does it once you've learned it, does it sit okay, or is it really a piece that you? to really maintain there's piece yeah i think there's piece that piece i do have to maintain it i i i i go through patches where where i just know okay maybe i don't have a performance of it for a little while but um and and i just don't come back to it and some of it comes back quickly you know how it is with repertoire pieces you know you can you can pick it up and maybe 30 or 40 percent of it are still there they're, they're still there in your hands you put all that time into it and there's a great residue for it but the danger of taking too much time off between a piece uh, is that it, it you sort of dissipates in your memory and then you have to maybe relearn things or you realize that you're being better with your maybe something in your technique has evolved and maybe you're coming at the instrument a little bit differently every single time you repeat a piece so i find that i find the atoms is is not easy to maintain i i would have to keep practicing it uh, just to stay in shape with it there's certain pieces in our repertoire like the albright sonata or I don't know, Barrio 7B or something, you know, you where if, if you let it go, it's you're going to suffer the consequences, you know. So as a soloist, what are your thoughts on memorization? 
Well, I, I, I think it's great. I mean, you certainly really learn a piece. If you, if you can play it from memory, you really know something. You really truly know it. Uh, if, if it's internalized the right way, otherwise you're just, you know, mimicking something and you're just trying to play it back. But if you can really intellectualize it and hear it on a very deep level, then, then you truly know it. You know, there's a certain point of, of, of with memory work where you either know it and you know that you're going to nail it or you know you know it and it's still uneasy and if you're uneasy because you're worried about playing it perfectly and 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 uh and you you still feel like you need the music then you should use the music you know and i so for me i should be able to play the john adams from memory and there's whole chunks of the piece i can play from memory but there's an uneasiness with every single conductor every single orchestra uh where they put the time where where they feel the time half the time they're always behind uh, the conductor is as meticulous as they can be and as well as well rehearsed as it might be. Once they start engaging uh, with the soloist in that piece, it, it's not simply just accompaniment anymore. It's a completely integrated piece. So I have found that every conductor I've ever worked with on that piece has a different idea of how they want to do things. I want to beam it this way. I want to I want to bar it this way. Uh, I don't think the last movement should be in two. I think the last movement should be in four. I don't, you know, I don't want to do this in cut time, you know, and suddenly you're, you're negotiating with a conductor about things that for me, memory is a problem when all of that starts to get disrupted. When, when I have to actually follow and pay attention, that's when I struggle with memory. If, if it's something like the e-bear, e-bear, you know, you just kind of set it and forget it. You can just, you know, it, it, once that piece starts, it's autopilot. I can play the e-bear and glasen off tomorrow from memory. Um, and glad and, and the atoms is like too much in my, like there's too much stuff going on sometimes. So, and of course, for the structure and the, the, the form of things, uh, if it's not really, really clear, I struggle with memory, you know, but, uh, you know, I know, I mean, there's so many great players that, that there's so many great players, amazing players that, that just, they're uncomfortable if they're trying to play from memory. So I started to just want to be comfortable more than anything else. But um, there was, uh, I don't remember who I was talking to, but there's just such a, a, in the string world or the piano world, the tradition of memorization is so prevalent. You, you, you're defined by just the common, the common core repertoire being something you can play from memory. And with saxophone, I think we have maybe five or six pieces like that, you know. Uh, but it's not really part of the wind tradition at all to play from memory. You know, great clarinetists that play the Copeland clarinet concerto with the music. So I don't know. I've never felt any shame about using the music, but I also think you truly, I mean, I, you truly don't know something until you've memorized it. I like this idea that, that memorization gives you understanding of knowledge mm -hmm. without the memorization if you're reading for example you have the knowledge mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have the understanding yeah that it does not compulsory it doesn't have to have understanding right it can just be memorized like right. you said it's more of a photograph but mm -hmm. once there's understanding then that can develop even when you're not at your instrument right you've got the chance for for your mind to be processing and learning and and if you've got an idle moment you can be thinking about the music yeah. but if it's not there if it's mm -hmm. vacant in your head and you need to look at the score, then then you don't think about it. Yeah. You think about something else. The yeah, match. Absolutely. And then and, and you certainly don't want people, you don't want students, for instance, memorizing something 
just to be able to play the part back from memory. I mean, you want them knowing the score more intimately than playing the part back from memory. And so if the score study is not completely organic, I mean, if they don't realize that that not only am I playing from memory, but this the way I'm playing is being informed by a color in the orchestra or the way I'm playing this is being informed by how it was laid down the first time by the first clarinet and you're imitating that. If you don't have any sense of that, then what's the point of memory at all? So that's that's maybe what happens with with students in memory work. Sometimes it's it's impressive, but it maybe it's only on the surface. Yeah. What um, what elements of improvisation have you used in your playing over the years? Is it something that you do, even if it at home, or is it something you leave aside? Like just any kind of improvisation. Yeah, I'm not talking about doing you know uh, some changes or something, but yeah, any kind. Yeah, I think it's a. I think well, I think it's just pivotal to general music making. You know, just the ability to get away from the printed page, or just being able to think in that in those terms. I mean, we if we think about just the grand tradition of of uh, music education, uh, instrumental learning for for so long was about playing back patterns and tunes and melodies without reading it it was just a way of setting up setting up the mechanics of the instrument you know learn mary mary had a little lamb learn that you know three notes right but but maybe you read the music after that after you learned the tune you know and and somehow that you, you, we lose that track after we start that track you know the students start uh you know, the band music is always just right there in front of you and you're already locked into reading music and maybe at the expense of your your ears or your oral awareness. Maybe you're maybe you're reading music well and you learn how to count well and you learn to identify the notes, but maybe you're not hearing it. Maybe you're playing out of tune. So I think for me, improvisation, as far as I mean, one in one level as a teacher, I'm using it to develop their their ear to hand technique. I want them to be able to create and know what they're playing I want, as opposed to just putting fingers down and guessing what they're playing. I want them to be able to create and know what they're playing. And as far as using it in my own playing, most of anything I've done recently have, uh, comes from uh, crossover projects and um, in, uh, collaborations with a lot of jazz artists that Prism has been undertaking recently with our Heritage Evolution series. We just put out and we're working on our second CD of that where we where we have um, targeted some of the world's premier you know, jazz saxophone players who are also who also consider themselves composers to some degree. I mean, art music composers, where they play with us, where they 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 write a piece for us that features them, and we're the backup band, so to speak. And we did a little bit of that yesterday in the Selmer concert where we had Branford Marsalis join us. And that was a piece of Matt Levy's, which featured Branford. And he's improvising largely through that. And there's elements of improvisation in that music. Um, but but there have been other pieces we've done where there's more improvisation. We did a project with Joe Lovano, and he was pushing us to really, you know, get out of our comfort zone, really, as classical players. So I think uh, when, I was, when I was growing up and I did more jazz growing up, I, I felt more diverse really as a player, as through my years of training, I was playing jazz, I was playing flute and clarinet in school, uh, just because I knew that some opportunities would come that way if I wanted to go that direction, like Broadway musicals type stuff, uh, all the classic musicals. Um, but I always felt that 
having even some rudimentary jazz skill always made my classical playing better. And there's a lot of, I mean, I guess there's different points of view on that, but they shouldn't be separated. They're just, it, it doesn't even matter what you love the most. They just shouldn't be separated, right? I mean, we, it's the culture of our instrument. If we choose to ignore it, I think we do it at our own peril. If you choose to say, well, I don't play jazz, I just think that's a risk because now composers, there's just a lot of composers that maybe themselves have some but jazz background or jazz training, or, you know, maybe sometimes less successfully, there are composers that will use the saxophone as the, uh, as the, I don't know, the, the test on, you know, whether or not they can write something in a jazzy style for the first time. You know, I, we don't want the saxophone to be, uh, experimental to them in, in their, in their latent or their suppressed jazz skills. But, but there's nothing worse than a really bad jazzy saxophone piece sometimes, but for a composer, it doesn't know what they're doing, but you know, it's asked of us, it's, it's asked of us so much to even have the spirit of improvisation or the spirit of spontaneous creativity. And oftentimes the standard training of a student doesn't involve that, or we're scared, we're scared to bring it up or we're scared to talk about it too much. Maybe we're not comfortable yet, but, um, but I don't, I, I'm not one who can play giant steps in 12 keys. I certainly can't do that. I think my first, my, my, my first great sense of achievement in jazz was the first time I was able to really get my head around transcribing some difficult tunes. So I, I transcribed giant steps when I was a senior in college. And, you know, that process, even if it didn't mean I could play it really, didn't mean that I would be able to really uh, replicate it on a really high level. But it, the process of deconstructing, you know, Coltrane's language and how he chooses what choices he made when he's when he when he saw this change, that is composition. You know, that process, I think, helped me deconstruct contemporary classical music faster and better. So I, I certainly push that process on students. You describe your learning, I guess, as the American school and mm-hmm. the teachers you've described. Do you consider yourself now to continue that or have you branched out in another direction? I, I, um, I have actively sought a, a middle ground. You know, if there is something that I'm actively embarking upon right now, in my playing and maybe it for me it's it represents this sort of next stage or something i have been taking on the last 10 years it's is to create some kind of common dialogue between uh, what we hear with the greatest players of every tradition and trying to figure out a single vocabulary a single stream you know uh, i'd like to believe that we are all are on the same team about what saxophone can be i think we should all be focusing our efforts to making sure that that's what we're doing as opposed to continuing to try to identify, you know, these, these nationalistic trends. If we're all these tributaries feeding into one stream of saxophone, then the instrument itself will, will, will benefit from that. But, I, but I, I, somewhere along the line in defining who I wanted to be, I think it was somewhere between the, you know, a fusion of, say, Donald Sinta and Claude Delong. And I found that if I could, if I could fuse those two worlds into one, then I knew somewhere in there I'd find me. 
And, you know, I love Claude's playing. And it's somewhere around like, I think 17 years ago, I think I shut myself off from all my previous experiences. And I just decided to only listen to French players, for instance, because I had no teachers promoting that. I had, I didn't study directly with anyone, you know, from, from like the, the emerging modern French school, but I just had the recordings. So I remember there was a period of time where much like I did with some jazz that I did, um, I, where I just closed myself off and only listened to say Claude DeLong records. And he, I've told him that story many times, you know, he's always so humbled and, you know, flattered and he's a dear man, but you know, it was true. It, it was important for me to just only listen to one aesthetic for a little while to, to figure out, you know, how I could navigate that. I didn't want to be seen. I mean, I had kind of this moniker put upon me when I was young that, that I was just a Cinta clone, you know, that I was just trying to sound like Donald Cinta all the time. And of course, you could do a lot worse than trying to sound like Donald Cinta. But we all as students uh, made the mistake of just only wanting to sound like our teacher. That's dangerous, you know, but I, but it, to, the, to the point that when I would hear something that was foreign to that, I dismissed it. If I heard someone not using his vibrato or I heard someone that didn't have the same sense of color and timbre, I would just think, oh, well, that's not good. So I was confronted by that when I started hearing the modern French players. Not like, I mean, when I heard Mule or Landex, I, I could, I could, I could understand that. I could, or Defaye, I still love Daniel Defaye's playing. I mean, the record, the playing and the recordings are, you know, still amazing. But, but, um, but I also think Donald Sinta, uh, his playing style and his teaching reflected more of that French style. But once I started hearing a lot of modern French players, I found myself thinking, well, why, you know, why don't they want to sound like Defaye anymore? <laughs> or why don't they want to sound like Marcel Muir? So I didn't really know how that was evolving on their end. And they've dealt with that. They have dealt with evolution in a way uh, that th th it, those are those are kind of hard, hard lessons they've had to endure. What is considered, you know, old fashioned. Uh, I think Americans hold on to, to the old fashioned sound, you know, more so. Um, I think it's it's part of us. I think we're a little bit more romantic generally, you know, than we think more that way. It's maybe more like a Russian romanticism or something more so than like a French neoclassicism or something. But I I uh, I started to get the difference and I started to figure out how to how to integrate it into my playing. In two thousand three, Claude brought me over to to teach at the Paris Conservatory, and he 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 went out of town like so he had me in as a guest but he he had a gig so he was in singapore or something so he's like it'll be fine you'll have you just teach the class you know and i had never i mean i had been to some competitions and i had traveled to europe already but i certainly hadn't walked into like the belly of the beast i'm mm -hmm. walking into the paris conservatory they don't really know who i am they know i'm just this american guy you know um and and I'm suddenly teaching master classes with, you know, young, the youngest hot shots in the, in the world and teaching Tomasi concerto and which I didn't even learn in college because Sinta didn't teach the Tomasi concerto. You know, he just sort of pushed us away from a lot of the French repertoire. Like the, he wanted us to know the big standards, obviously, but for him, Tomasi was off that list. It's like, if you're going to put the time in days and clothes, you don't need to work on Tomasi. I mean, he was kind of, he wanted us to get to, he eventually wanted us to get to, you know, Barrio and, you know, the, the, you know, that kind of rep. But um, anyway, so 
I hear I am teaching students Tomasi, and I'm like, I, I can't even speak this language with them. You know, the choices they're making are foreign to me. So that was a wake up call. And I started to really try to understand more of a, of a French school, a modern French school. And, and it found its way into my pedagogy, trying to neutralize a little bit some of my American tendencies, trying to at least speak to something that would uh, maybe hopefully appeal to both sides a little bit. And that I, I hope that's helped me um, just, I don't know, work in different environments. When I teach, I have I teach in the Arosa Music Academy in the summer in Switzerland. That's a very international class. I do that with Lars Blankush and, and uh, Christian Wirth were the three teachers. You know, and the students are coming from all over the world. I've served on these juries for some of these uh, international competitions. Um, I'm now interacting with so many of these players who are truly looking to the, the French school as a pantheon. And, and I want to be able to, to kind of navigate that with them and show them how I use it. And then there's certain pieces I do pride myself on, on when I'm playing a French piece. I, I do want to turn off some of those American tendencies when I play some of those pieces. I want to create some kind of authenticity. It's still going to be more in a vintage style, really, but it's still, I hope to think the pedagogy is rooted in, in, in more of these, you know, the, the nationalism. But somewhere along the way, I want to be in the middle. Mm. Yeah. Now, you ready for some rapid fire yeah, questions? Yeah, let's do it. Well, here we go. Is there something that you believe that few other people agree with? Is there something I believe that few other people agree with? I don't know about few other people, but I, I think I, I think vibrato should always be with the jaw, you know. So that's something. You know, there are people using vibrato now more and more with the air. I don't believe that. If you just had one piece of music that you could play now, forever, what would that be? Uh, I, well, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to have these experiences with the John Adams Concerto, and and uh, w time and history will tell whether or not it's, you know, the you know, one of our greatest masterpieces, but I'm happy to play that forever. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm very interested in this, uh, the idea behind what makes a piece endure and is there something inside of the music that allows that to happen? And the thing I keep coming back to is it is possibly that collaboration between performer and composer mm -hmm. because it adds something else to the music. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look back through the pieces that have stuck around, often there is some collaboration connected with the piece. I think so. So I'll be curious too with uh, this piece you've been playing so much to see, especially when you perhaps let it go mm -hmm. and, right. uh, and everyone's playing it, to, right. to see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. If you just had one hour to practice, what would you do? Uh, my thirds, <laughs> scales and thirds. So. <laughs> Who would you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone? Throughout history? Yeah, if you like, yeah. I mean, historically, we, uh, I mean, I, I, we could say Mule or Rasher, but I, I think we have to default and go back. I think we have to say, we have to say Sigurd Rasher. So why is that? I, because w without him, we just really wouldn't be where we are. Marcel Mule, of course, made such a huge impact but rasher was the visionary even if he was using or his he was rooted in kind of more of an vintage vintage equipment an invented setup um that's just because it was it was it was aligned more with the sound of the times anyway so if he was coming up in the 20s 
you know, he doesn't have the benefit to look ahead and see where the saxophone's going to go. So he's going to stick with the saxophone as it's more, as it's more aligned with sort of Adolf Sax's vision. But in the end, his pedagogy has endured the longest. I mean, and his, if we're going to talk about a pedagogical cold war, and it may be, it may be controversial to say, but if there's a pedagogical cold war between, uh, you know, Rasher and Mule, Rasher wins. He, he was the one who said the Altissimo was necessary. He was the one that said that the, the, the building blocks to get us there had to be ingrained at the very early ages of the instrument. So overtone work and uh, flexibility exercises and uh, uh, just looking at the saxophone as an extended instrument. In the end, we've all come to that same conclusion now. But it was just so controversial for so long that it was completely avoided. So we're very lucky. And of course, we wouldn't have the Glazunov and Ebert and the Dahl and the Husa and Benson. I think the contributions of, of his commissioning efforts and or his, his uh, at least his collaborations with composers, uh, I think they've endured the, in the greatest way you know, across the globe. And then we talk about that collaboration again between mm -hmm. player and composer. Absolutely. It is interesting. And, and we've got the benefit now of hindsight looking back almost 100 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's... Um, Interesting. And when I see new pieces kind of flying along and no one has ever looked at them, mm -hmm. there was no, the composer didn't ask an instrumentalist at all. Right. And I see these pieces swing by and go out the other way because yep. they're, they're missing something. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not that the performer has to help write the piece, it just, it's uh, just subtle things, mm -hmm. um, maybe facility that it flows and mm -hmm. things, and the other way around as well. Right. I, I think composers, you know, composers will either champion us, uh, you know, but we are the, ultimately we're the champions of their music. And you think about, you think about, you think about what those, the, the people who have been champions of a piece, um, yeah, they've allowed that music to have a great legacy. Yeah. If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? Oh, absolutely. I think we're, I think we're in the process of that now. You know, we're, it, we are going through that. We're still going through growing pains as a, as a profession. Um, we, I, I think it is important to learn from failure. I think we have to embrace failure on, on every level as a, as a human being, like as a, the way we interact, our relationships. I think we, we can only learn from pain. Uh, I think as players, there's nothing we can provide a student that their first experience playing in an orchestra will provide. We can't teach that. There's no lab experience for them. They have to go into that environment and probably fail to some degree to learn, you know, to realize that they don't play in tune well enough, to realize that, that their sense of time is different than the orchestras because they don't play with them every day, you know, or that to understand a conductor's the way a conductor cues something or way a conductor decides to interpret something, we can't provide that. All we can do is provide them sort of the, the, the warnings about it. And then they have to go into that environment and fail and failure, meaning the littlest things like your note came out slightly late, you know, your attack, your first note of picture set exhibition wasn't perfectly in time. And then the conductor gives you the evil eye, you know? So, those are, those are the hardest lessons for us. And it also is the only way for us to grow because we are behind. I think we're still behind. 
I, I still think the saxophone is is, uh, is 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 taught better than ever. The playing is better than ever. These world congresses are stunning. They're stunning displays of where our instrument is, and yet you, you, we could all we have to do is play uh, bolero and realize that is as as good as we think we are. That's where you have to understand time, you know. To lay that solo down with the snare drum, giving the ostinato, and you have just heard for seven minutes everyone else play the solos, and you've got to come in and play of the same level or better. You have to change the room. You have to you have to make everyone love the saxophone. It's such a burden we bear. We have to we we need to fight to make everyone leave the concert believing the favorite thing was when the saxophone player came in <laughs> you know rachmaninoff bizet Mussorgsky, Ravel. i mean we have opportunities to change people's minds and some of us frankly fail at that and others of us achieve that so if since it's not since it's not uniform across the profession if it's not uniform across the profession then we still have growing pains you know that we're that we're enduring so learning from mistakes comes in the very smallest forms but I, i'm talking i'm much more on a on a on a um, kind of genre level uh a genre level um uh concern that um we have to continue to to ask more of ourselves is this a danger of playing in front of other saxophone players because we don't have that level of uh, genre critique mm -hmm. we may, may have a, a technical critique coming from all of the players who know exactly what we're doing mm -hmm. but we don't have that coming from other instruments yeah is it, that's a danger is it is a danger that we have not too many of the its events but yeah. it becomes the focus of our performing i think yeah i think so i mean and and we we certainly uh we flock to one another and we are a wonderful community and it's a it's a great community and i think it's more unified and uh, than ever and and the sense of purpose is is uh is 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 shared um but i think and i'm sure you've felt this way and 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 you know many of our our wonderful colleagues but you know it, it takes reaching a certain level of skill to finally begin to interact with elite circles of non-saxophonists you start to spend time with violinists and cellists and clarinet players flute players or whatever and if you have done the right things and you have pursued the right kind of uh, 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 standards and you begin to enter into that arena of say chamber music or playing with some of the greatest you know wind players in the world it's in it's when you've reached that status that they'll finally share with you what they really think of the saxophone and, and we hear it all the time normally i hate saxophone but i love the way you sound so that so the before you ever played for them they hated saxophone <laughs> so so someone failed in their duty to our instrument when someone has said that normally i hate saxophone but you sound great Okay, well, maybe that was a victory in that moment for our instrument because you maybe changed someone's mind, but that just means that along the way, someone else didn't do their job. Uh, I think that's, um, that's something that we don't learn until we've gained their trust. Once we've entered into that circle, then they finally tell you what they really think about our instrument. So that's where we have a ways to go, if you know what I mean. You know, that, that's, 
something that we have to fight for. I try to push that every day. I'm like with my students. I'm like, you know, you you don't realize that secretly everyone is secretly and it's a terrible thing to say and i certainly am not i don't have a negative outlook on humanity this way but i mean i do believe in the good of people but i do believe people are skeptical of our instrument you know the minute we walk on stage we've got a lot to prove we got we have to prove to these people that we can achieve everything they do you know color control uh, uh intonation and, and, you know, every day I'm fighting for that. I mean, every day I'm unhappy when I play because I'm just, it's not in tune enough. I've got to find a better fingering. I've got to find a better read, uh, you know, and, and it, it drives me. It drives me because I just, I have this thing in the back of my head that believe, that I believe that people are, uh, it sounds terrible, but kind of rooting against the instrument. And if, and if, and if I can just use that as my, uh, bulletin board material, you know, like, like in sports, you know, if I can just sort of keep that in the back of my mind, then it will continue to ground me every time I practice or every time I teach something. Assume that people will assume that you don't know what you're doing and, and then change their minds. And the only places are, I think, our most important avenues that we can do that is in the orchestral realm. Because if you look at the top 40, the, you know, the classical quote unquote top 40, most of that music has saxophone in it now, you know. Bolero is played all the time, you know. Uh, Pictures and Exhibition is played all the time. Romeo and Juliet, you get one chance to impress everyone on that opening low C sharp. You get one chance. And you will either miss it and crack it or, or honk it out or lose the intonation on it. I mean, you, you will either do it or it will be perfect. You have Everything in between is irrelevant. It's either going to be perfect or it's going to be messy. That's your one shot. So the, I, think the, I think the training in the studio, I think the training in the one-on-one has to be of that, this, this fervor that you have that. That's going to be your first chance to make a huge impression on people. Uh, and, and then and then if you bring those standards to your solo work, well, that's that's it's a given that that you'll have a safe haven to play your solo music within because you're going to be doing that in academia or you're going to be doing that in a community of people that love what we do, like a world congress. We're all supporting each other. We can all miss Altissimo and maybe there's some empathy, you know, but if you miss Altissimo in front of a clarinet player, I think they don't really understand like what's so hard about that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, that's a big answer for a rapid fire. Sorry. <laughs> I heard you play the John Adams Concerto the other night. Is there something that you do before you walk on stage to help you really play in the best frame of mind? Uh, I, 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 I have to have, I have to rest the right way every day before performance. I have to eat the right things. You know, I always say le- uh, more bananas, less coffee. You know, so I have to, I, I have to figure out how to slow the. The nervous system down you know because there's always apprehension and anxiety i i must say you know performing here uh, before i went on stage i had some anxiety about playing for you know a hall full of saxophone players i just do uh, uh I, I i know that there again people are most people are rooting for you there might be some that root against you you know you have to put that out of your mind but or there's people that that love what you do and people that 
hate what you do. I, that's just life. We have to just perform to, to some degree for your, for ourselves. But, but I think that creates anxiety when you play for, uh, for other saxophone players. There's no, there are no uh, greater critics than, than your peer group, you know, so we all know that. But I think part of part of that is uh, calming calming the head down, you know, figuring out how to really calm the mind as as you're about to walk on stage. And part of that is just really getting for me. Well, it sounds really cliche and really cheesy to say, but I always I come back to the music itself. I come back to the the love of the music. And I think about the composer and the 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 the, the faith that composer might have in me. And I think about honoring them. And when I think about, and that puts me in a headspace that, that makes me realize that this is for them. There's pressure to play well for them, but it's not about trying to play well for, for trying to play well for the audience. It's about trying to play well for them. Like I, you know, I want, I want Barry to be happy with my cuckoo. I want Barry to be, I don't care if, if someone else has played cuckoo and is going to criticize my slap tonguing, I want Barry to be happy. Uh, that that to me actually is a really happy. That's a really positive feeling for me. Like that 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 doesn't breed anxiety. That breeds like communion with the experience. So I I think when I walk on stage right before John Adams, I'm not thinking about the saxophone players in the room anymore. I'm thinking about you know uh, just the, the the spirit of the music and the person who wrote it. Uh, that that helps me. Uh, it helps calm the mind somehow, and then I'm not so nervous about missing something, or any, you know, I'm not nervous anymore about missing a note. And then I and then I channel the music differently. If I'm worried about missing stuff, I'm going to miss stuff, you know. So I will channel the music by thinking about only the, the sound of the music. But as far as like the warm up routine or something, I just have to play slowly. I play through everything really slowly. I don't want to play anything at tempo you know, one or two hours before the performance. I don't want to play anything at tempo because if I make a mistake, it's going to get in my head. So I just want to calm the mind and I want the experience of the day to be nothing but total success. I want to feel like every note was played. I want to feel like every note was internalized right before I went on stage. Um, that's why we have to arrive early. That's why we can't be throwing the instrument together. That's why we can't uh, be playing every playing through the music too quickly because then we get all we get all nervous. I think pianists will talk about that. The day of a concert, don't play anything at tempo. At best, play everything half tempo the day of the concert. Uh, so I've learned that, those mm -hmm. kind of lessons. Right. Yeah. Looking back, is there a bit of advice you could give to yourself um, that you would have liked to have heard when you were starting out? Uh, you know, we've, we, we have to balance things. Uh, we have to make sure our relationships are balanced. I think when I was younger, I might have closed myself off, you know, just to practice. Uh, and I think I did the right things as far as networking or meet, you know, having friendships and collaborators. But, um, but I do think I tell my students what I probably should have heard myself. And that is just get out of the practice room, you know, and, uh, enjoy life a little bit more because those experiences make you a better musician and traveling more. Uh, I, I, I did travel fairly early, but I could have started traveling a, a lot earlier. Um, and it, it, you know, I know I just said, I just talked about this, but, um, we do have to let go and stop worrying about what people think. Uh, so we, we have to set ourselves up for those expectations 
about what the standard is. The standard is of our profession or what we imagined is some, you know, mythical, mythical standard. But then when it's all said and done, we have to let go and, and we have to stop caring what people think. And uh, I've, I've had to, I've had to learn those lessons the hard way, you know, because they eat at you. And if we can free ourselves up from that, we'll be happier all around. Now, is there a recent project you've been working on that you'd like to tell us about? Oh, well, I mean, uh, I, back in March, I recorded an entire album of all of the music of Andy Scott, our friend. Mm-hmm. Love his music. Um, and uh, he brought me and my pianist, Liz Ames, we're a duo, brought us to um, the countryside outside of England. And we recorded in Potton Hall. Um, and uh, it was three days, wonderful producer. Uh, an engineer and it was a very deeply memorable experience but uh, i had a great time with it uh so that will be coming out within this year uh also just finished an, uh, another solo project solo piano project with liz ames as well uh, another album of um kind of you know a mix of newer things and older things i re-recorded the albright sonata because i feel like for me, it's number one on my list of important pieces, and uh, I did it. I recorded it in 2004 on an album, and I recorded it again because I'm older and wiser, and love the piece that much. So we did an album of, of Albright and uh, um, Stephen Stuckey, who passed away relatively recently. We did his saxophone piano piece and Montavani, Augusta Reed Thomas, uh, wonderful young composer David Biedenbender. They wrote a great soprano saxophone and piano piece. Um, and um, uh, the Denisov Sonata. Hmm. So the piece that the piece that prompted my desire to study with Donald Sinta and go to Michigan uh, to hear it's like my life kind of you know came back to this and you know played the Denisov Denisov Sonata in high school and uh, in college. But um, you know you, you get older and you teach it and you know I wanted to finally record it. So that's a project with her. Uh, August tenth sees the release of. Uh, my recording of Kenneth Fuchs, uh, his concerto for saxophone called Rush, coming out on uh, kind of coming out on the Naxos label with the London Symphony Orchestra and Joanne Folletta conducting. Uh, very excited about that project, and it was an incredible experience. We recorded in Abbey Road in London, so those are some projects this year that'll be released, and uh, just taking on some, commis- some commissions and. Very excited about a, a, a future concerto coming from John Corleano. So uh, that will be, that's about two years away. So, so where can we find more information about all of these act- activities? Yeah. I try to keep my website as current as I can. I probably need some help with that. I need, I need like a, an assistant for those kind of things. But uh, my website is uh, timothymcallister.com. Uh, you, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I usually use Twitter maybe as more of a, more for professional, uh, uh, just like a bulletin board, so to speak. Uh, I usually put links there to various projects, and um, some people uh, get tired of my political posts on Facebook. Actually, but, I did uh, notice they're getting stronger and stronger. They I get think. stronger. <laughs> I think you're moving to Canada soon. I, I think I might have to. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we all have our own little. We all have, we all have our little part to play, and if there's any way I can. Just kind of express myself. I guess that's one of the best ways to do it. But you know, it's a, we are in a really difficult climate right now in America. But um, but yeah, <laughs> it, but I I still probably primarily use Facebook for um, you know announcing projects and 
and uh, um, uh, concert touring and whatnot. So now the final question is: Sure, you've made such a incredible contribution to the saxophone for a long time. Well, you're very kind. What do you see for yourself? Talking of planning for the next 10, 20 years. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would like to believe that the climate of, of music and culture as it exists now, even if it even if it stalemated, if, even if it was exactly the same now, uh, if it's exactly the same 20 years as it is from now, it's still that would still be pretty healthy of, of a climate for us to operate within. Um, we, you know, we've been talking about the downfall of classical music for over 100 years, right? I mean, we're still here. We're still doing it. We have sac we have proof right here with all these saxophone players that that what we do matters, and that we're here to stay. And Martin, we're not going anywhere, you know. And the rest of the classical music world, in this case, uh, they have they have to recognize that. And they they and and I want the history books to show. I want musicologists to document this period and say that that the saxophone rose to to a prominence that we hadn't seen since the 1920s with composers the interest in composers and the amount of performances and the premieres and the pedagogy and the curricula and i i'd like to say that in 20 years i'd, I'd like to be able to look back and say that i'm I, I i influenced that maybe at the at the highest escalons i i don't want uh, a, a composer uh, like a Johannes Brahms figure. I don't want someone like that passing from this earth without having considered writing for the saxophone. We, we, we missed out on Brahms. We missed out on Copeland. We missed out on Bernstein for various reasons. Berg, he passed away, but I think, you know, the, the word is he would have written a saxophone concerto for Sigurd Rascher. So, you know, we missed out on these people. We can't miss out on any more. And if I can use any of this you know this visibility i've had that i've been able to enjoy if i can use that and channel that into at least getting uh more and more attention to the saxophone then i i will be happy i don't necessarily need to perform much more i don't i don't need that but i won't i feel like i have an opportunity if i say so myself i mean i i i do believe i have an opportunity to help uh make the saxophone you know, even even better for future generations. I think we're all doing that together. We're part of a team. You and I, all of our all of our great colleagues in every country in the planet it seems, uh, we're 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 paving this road together. And if I have some influence uh, on par with with composers like John Adams, then I would like to make that my my mission. Great, Tim. Yes. Thank you for taking this time out Thank of your you, busy schedule this week. And I uh, wish you the best for the rest of the week. Thank you so much, Barry, for having me. It's a great podcast, and thanks to everyone listening. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs' show. Thank you.